0: I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of the People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of the People's Pharmacy.
0: You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. For thousands of years, humans have used herbs to help us heal. Now science shows us how herbal treatments work. This is the People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon.
1: Many of us are unfamiliar with the research that's been conducted on botanical medicines, but scientists are increasingly discovering how these compounds work.
0: Dr. Taroni Lodog has been studying the science-supporting herbal therapies for decades. She's one of the country's leading experts on botanical medicines.
1: We'll also talk with Dr. Bill Rawls about how herbs can support cellular wellness. He'll explain which herbs he takes daily and why.
0: Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, we will explore the healing power of herbs.
1: in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. There's growing controversy about the best way to measure blood pressure. Guidelines from the American Heart Association recommend that people be seated with their arms supported at heart level. Now, researchers at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center report that taking blood pressure while a person is standing is more accurate. The investigators recruited 125 healthy adults with no history of hypertension. They compared three different ways of measuring blood pressure, seated in a doctor's office, standing in a doctor's office, and 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. The last is considered the gold standard. They found that the accuracy of standing blood pressure measurements in detecting hypertension was better than seated measurement. The researchers suggest that using standing blood pressure would make it easier for doctors to determine Who needs treatment for high blood pressure? Lest
0: you think the question of how to measure blood pressure is settled, a different study found that blood pressure is best measured lying down. The results were presented at the American Heart Association Hypertension Scientific Sessions this fall. The investigators used data from 11,369 participants in a long-running study of cardiovascular risk. It compared sitting blood pressure to reclining blood pressure and the risk of stroke, heart attack, or cardiovascular death over the next quarter century. When people had high blood pressure only while they were lying down, they were 34% more likely to die. 51% 51% more likely to develop heart failure, and 62% more likely to have a stroke. The authors conclude that using reclining blood pressure measurements might help doctors identify patients who need treatment.
1: Experts estimate that nearly half of American adults have high blood pressure, and many are not being treated effectively. One of the challenges is getting patients connected with healthcare professionals. A study in JAMA Network Open examined the cost-effectiveness of having pharmacists measure blood pressure treatment, including prescribing medications. The analysis demonstrated that having 50% of people with hypertension consulting with pharmacists could save more than a trillion dollars and 30 million years of life over the course of three decades. The authors conclude, the necessary tools and resources are readily available to implement pharmacist-prescribing interventions across the U.S. However, reimbursement limitations remain a barrier.
0: Chronic liver disease and consequent liver cancer is an important cause of death. Data from nearly 99,000 postmenopausal women shows that consuming sugar-sweetened beverages on a regular basis contributes to the risk for liver cancer and dying of liver disease. These participants in the Women's Health Initiative provided more than 20 years of follow-up data with periodic updates on their dietary habits. Compared to women who drank fewer than three sugar-sweetened beverages a month, those who had at least one a day were far more likely to develop liver cancer or die from chronic liver disease. Consumption of artificially sweetened drinks did not have the same outcomes.
1: Taking vitamin D supplements might help ward off dementia. A 10-year study of more than 12,000 older adults found that those taking vitamin D were less likely to be diagnosed with dementia during that time frame. None had such a diagnosis at the start of the study. Those who took vitamin D, whether in combination with calcium, as D2, or as D3, were 40% less likely to develop dementia. The investigators concluded that the earlier people started taking the nutrient, the more likely they were to experience benefit against cognitive decline.
0: Most people don't imagine frail elderly people doing yoga, but a meta-analysis indicates that we should. A systematic review of 33 randomized controlled trials found that older adults have stronger legs and walk better after practicing yoga. Results on better balance, which could help reduce falls among frail elders, were less clear. And that's the health news from The People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. Medical education emphasizes pharmaceuticals. Very few doctors are knowledgeable about the power of herbs to help us heal. We're fortunate today to have two outstanding physicians who have studied the science of plant-based medicines.
0: Later in this show, we'll talk with Dr. Bill Rawls about his new book, The Cellular Wellness Solution. First, though, we're talking with Dr. Tarone Lodog. She's a founding member of the American Board of Physicians Specialties, American Board of Integrative Medicine, and the Academy of Women's Health. Dr. Lodog's e-books include Healing Heartburn Naturally and Spices That Heal.
1: Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Tyrone Lodog.
2: Thank you. It's a joy to be with you again.
0: Dr. Lodog, you have um, written another book uh, called Spices That Heal, 10 Healing Herbs and Spices, and the science, that's really important, the science that supports them. And I guess I'd like to start with a really simple but complicated question. What's the difference between an herb and a spice?
2: Well, you know, there's a lot of overlap there. But in general, if you think of your culinary herbs being things that are, you know, woody and leafy. So oregano and basil and sage and thyme. And if you think of your spices as being from the more exotic um, sort of uh, seeds and barks, things like um, star anise, cinnamons, these are more exotic types of spices. People use them interchangeably. I tend to use spice when I'm really talking more about the plants that are barks and seed pods and then the culinary herbs, I generally refer to them, and they are generally referred to in the trade as those that are soft, herbaceous plants that um, that we're using. And I think people are very familiar with the culinary herbs because we use them a lot. But also people know about the exotic spices, cinnamon being one of the most popular in um, American use. Now, of course, there
0: is some overlap,
2: and I'm thinking about turmeric,
0: because in India, it is used as, I guess I'll call it a a culinary spice, it's used in cooking all the time in curries, but now here in the United States, it's probably being used more as a supplement for anti-inflammatory purposes, and people think of it now maybe partly
2: as an, an herbal preparation that will relieve their aches and pains. Turmeric's one of the most popular supplements right now in the United States. And of course, it is a spice, a tropical, you know, most of these spices come from tropical areas. And turmeric is just amazing for so many things, for gut health. I take it personally for my own, you know, aches and pains and joint things, you know, just getting older and, and sort of the, the wear and tear on joints. But its effects on the gut are profound. And we're learning so much about how turmeric, when it's consumed in food or when people use it as a supplement, that it has um, a very healing effect on the gut tissue, and it's very supportive of a healthy gut microbiome. When my mother had, uh, had been treated for her colon cancer, so she went through conventional treatment and had come through on the other side. She had a lot of disruption in her colon from the surgery and the chemotherapy and radiation. In addition to probiotics, I put her on curcumin and, you know, she had very advanced colon cancer. And I don't, you know, I think there's many things, including the treatment she had, but she told me that, you know, years and years and years later, she lived 22 years beyond her, her colon cancer. She said that she thought that the turmeric was one of the things that had made the biggest difference in getting her her gut back into working order. Many people find that turmeric can be a healthy part of of maintaining good digestive function. And I would encourage people to include it in their cooking. I throw it in tomato soup and I throw about a half a teaspoon in per can of turmeric and it gives it a lovely flavor. But also, if you're thinking about a half a teaspoon, you're getting, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 milligrams in turmeric in just your bowl of soup. So there's a lot of ways to integrate it into cooking, as well as, you know, considering to take a supplement if that's what you're more drawn to.
1: Now, Tirani, when you mentioned the supplement, you said curcumin. And I think we need to be very explicit that this is one, but only one of the many ingredients in turmeric, right?
2: Absolutely. Curcumin is sort of the collective word that we use for a group of these yellow pigments that exist in in turmeric. Its botanical name is curcuma, and curcumin takes its name for these compounds from the botanical genus name. And when you think about a plant, curcumin or these yellow pigments probably contribute greatly to the overall effect of turmeric, but there are many other components of turmeric that matter and that also contribute to its overall healing effects. So, it's why when you cook with turmeric, you're getting everything. And if you're buying a supplement, you'll find that many of them mix both what we call a standardized extract, so they contain 95% curcumin, so it's been really spiked to have a lot of curcumin in it, but it also will probably include a number of hundreds of milligrams of just ground turmeric rhizome. People also call it a root. It's, it's more technically a rhizome. It's an underground stem. But when you blend both of those together in a supplement, what happens is you're getting a nice big dose of the curcumin, but you're also getting everything else that was in the whole turmeric underground part. So I, I do recommend those type of supplements. I think they're better because you're getting more representative of what's actually in turmeric. But curcumin is the, is the part of the rhizome that has been most heavily studied. And we do believe that tho- that group of compounds make up a considerable part of the medicinal effect of turmeric.
0: Now, Dr. Lodog, you have this lovely book, this Spices That Heal book, and I fear that most Americans take spices for granted these days. But if you go way back, you know, climb into the Wayback Machine, maybe 6,000 years or so, it turns out that our Stone Age ancestors – actually prized spices. Now, we can go to the supermarket and buy just about anything for a few bucks, but there was a time when, you know, the Venetian traders got very, very wealthy because of things like cinnamon and thyme and cumin and dill and mint and coriander. You know, they used spices for more than just flavor. They they were preserving meat and fish. In Egypt, they were preserving... (laughs) Mummies people, exactly. And in India, they've used garlic and ginger and turmeric and cloves to preserve. So give me some sense of the importance of spices over the centuries, over the millennia.
2: Today we have refrigeration. We have ways of preserving our food where we're able to can, we're able or jar, however you want to call it. But people today, we have so many ways of preserving food. And we have access 24-7 in the United States to grocery stores where we can purchase our food. If you go back in time, preservation was far more limited. People could salt their food. They could jerk their meat, um, you know, over a fire. But let's make no mistake, um food was not well preserved and often would, would be foul. So when people would add spices, when they would add culinary herbs, it enhanced the flavor But many of these spices and herbs also prevented rancidity of the food, that it helped the food be preserved for longer periods of time. So for me, the spices and herbs, their value, their value is so profound. And when you come to modern times, I have to say that we're looking extensively at these plants, at these group of highly aromatic plants for their health benefits. Uh, not only are they looking at them in food, the food industry. So food the food industry continues to look at how to incorporate these into modern foods uh, for preservation, for taste, flavor, mouthfeel, et cetera. But we're also looking at them for their medicinal activity. These compounds inside of these highly aromatic plants, uh, many of them are what we call phenolic compounds, and they have profound bioactivity many of them are potent antiseptics antimicrobials many of them have powerful antioxidant activity and so when we're uh, you know profound effects on the gut microbiome uh, many of them can cross across the, uh, go across the blood brain barrier so they have effects on cognition and mood and possibly on you know as we age preserving our cognition so for me i believe that you know, if you had to place a bet on where we could find some of the most powerful compounds in nature, what you would look towards outside of mushrooms and other things like that. But in the plant world, you would look for these um, highly aromatic plants and and really begin to look at them in their totality to find uh, new and novel ways to use them. But it is, for me, you know, Joe, why people need to cook more with spices and include them in their diet. Everybody knows the Mediterranean diet and they and they think it's olive oil and, you know, and fish. I would contend that they have some of the heaviest uses of culinary herbs of any diet in that region. They use rosemaries and thyme and basil, garlics and onions. I mean, they use a ton of the alien vegetables as well as herbs and 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 also spices and i believe that that's also what contributes to many of the health benefits that we see with people that consume a mediterranean diet across their lifetime here in the united states when i was growing up it was mostly salt and pepper and occasionally ketchup and mustard and that was sort of what people used for spicing their food which which i think is um too much salt is not good pepper's fine um but boy, if you really want to change up your diet, you know, get some spices into your, into your daily meals, buy some more ethnic cookbooks, Indian cookbooks, Mediterranean cookbooks. I have a whole array of cookbooks that I use um, so that I am able to, you know, incorporate many of these spices and herbs into our, our daily meals.
1: You're listening to Dr. Tyrone Lodog, founding member of the American Board of Integrative Medicine. She was elected chair of the U.S. Pharmacopeia Dietary Supplements Botanicals Expert Committee. Her books include Spices That Heal.
0: After the break, we'll talk more about some of our favorite spices.
1: Thyme and rosemary have medicinal benefits. What should you know about them?
0: Saffron is another spice that serves as a botanical medicine.
1: Sometimes spices are confusing. There are several different types of cinnamon, for example.
0: Which one might you use for wellness?
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This People's Pharmacy podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, Coco Pro Cocoa Extract.
0: If you're not already familiar with the benefits of cocoa flavanols, now is a better time than ever to consider adding Cocovia supplements to your daily health routine. From November 20th to November 30th, get 30% off all Cocovia products using the discount code BFCMPOD at Cocovia.com. Let me give that to you again. It's B as in boy, F as in Frank, C as in cyber, Amazon Monday, POD at Cocovia.com.
1: Whether you're looking to prioritize your heart health or brain health, You can find a supplement to fit your needs with Coco All Coco supplements contain the number one bioactive flavanol extract, CocoPro, backed by 20 plus years of research. These powerful bioactive nutrients are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular health and improve cognitive function as you age. Plus, the supplements are available as either convenient capsules or a delicious dark chocolate flavor powder. Don't forget to check them out soon. It's their best deal all year, so don't miss out.
0: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at Cocovia.com.
0: And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com.
1: Today, we're talking about the power of herbs for optimal wellness. We may take kitchen herbs like rosemary and thyme for granted as flavoring agents. But research shows they can also affect our health.
0: Our guest is Dr. Tarone Lodog, founding member of the American Board of Integrative Medicine. She was elected chair of the U.S. Pharmacopeia Dietary Supplements Botanical Expert Committee and was appointed to the Scientific Advisory Council for the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Her books include Life is Your Best Medicine and Fortify Your Life, Your Guide to Vitamins, Minerals, and More.
1: Dr. Lodag, we'd like to ask you about some very specific spices. And one of our favorites is thyme. I put a lot of thyme in something I made yesterday, and it was delicious. But what are we getting? What benefits might we be getting in addition to that lovely thyme flavor?
2: One of the things that I use time the most for is respiratory problems. When people have colds and congestions and cough, time is exceptional. What it does actually is sort of thin the, thin the mucus, uh, making it a little easier to expectorate, but it also stimulates the little cilia or the little hairs that line the, the respiratory tract, increasing their, their beat and their upward movement so that it can move mucus up and out of the chest. It is one of the most popular herbal combinations um, in Europe, thyme uh, when it's blended with ivy or primrose. When you go to any pharmacy in Europe, you will find this combination. But make no mistake, it's thyme that's really having the primary activity there. In Germany, it is still recognized as an over-the-counter treatment for whooping cough. Um, for that really severe cough that individuals can get. It is good for the mood. We know that uh, one of the constituents in the volatile oils can increase dopamine and serotonin levels, at least in animal models. And these are brain chemicals that increase our sense of wellness and happiness and joy. And isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago, the Greeks and the Romans were writing about its ability to lift the mood and to make people more joyful. So, you know, thyme is in Listerine. It is a powerful antiseptic. Uh, It was used in sick rooms. To The strong teas were used to wash down the rooms uh, during the war, just like Rosemary was. So thyme, when we think of its antioxidant activity, when we think of its mood-lifting activity— and we think also of how it can benefit the respiratory and digestive system. I just think this is one that everybody should have in their home. And the nice thing is that thyme can be purchased fresh at almost any grocery store. And you can make a very simple thyme cough syrup, um, you know, for just a couple of dollars. And boy, does it taste good and does it work. It's a wonderful cough remedy.
0: Now, Tarana, you mentioned rosemary. We interviewed a physician, a pretty standard issue doctor who a cardiologist actually he and his wife had gone to Italy and had studied a little village there, and they kept going back because the people in this village lived to ninety and a hundred and over a hundred, and they were they were doing great, i mean physically and mentally. And he thought rosemary was one of the key spices that was maybe contributing to their longevity. And so I'd like to get your perspective on rosemary, not just as a spice in food, but also some of the science behind the health benefits.
1: Yeah,
2: the herb of remembrance. I mean, kind of interesting that rosemary has long been associated with memory, and cognition. And today, researchers are actually looking at this in elders, you know, people 75 years and older, and looking to see if it has any positive benefit on on their ability to remember on, you know, memory, on short-term memory and recall. And actually, there is research in human elders that has shown this to be true. Now, for me, I look at this and say, oh my gosh, you know, isn't it fascinating that 25 years, 100 years ago, people were talking about this for memory. Now, rosemary, so this could be one thing when people are including this in their diet over a long period of time, how that may be uh, preserving cognition, right? Just uh, over a lifetime, it boosts your mood and attention. So rosemary, the essential oil, I used to just keep some in the car with me. And when I would be driving home late at night, After being on call, if I was feeling tired, I would just open that little bottle and sort of inhale the rosemary, which then made me feel more awake. Rosemary is, you know, kind of like a stimulating essential oil, if you will, in that way, kind of helping to awaken and help with focus. I use rosemary oil extensively in my massage oils uh, because rosemary is very good for aches and pains and joint pain. It's like all culinary herbs. It's excellent for, you know, helping to fight off minor infections. It's a good antimicrobial. It's a wonderful anti-inflammatory. I mean, when you just think about it, you know, and even down to H. pylori, uh, a uh, organism that's associated with ulcers as well as potentially gastric cancer, rosemary inhibits the growth of H. pylori. So imagine people that are just consuming this on a regular basis, Like where your, your cardiologist uh, friend went, where people are including rosemary on a regular basis. Think about over decades and decades of consuming something that has all of this bioactivity for the brain, for mood, for tamping down inflammation, which has been associated with cardiovascular disease and, you know, and cognitive decline as well in elders. I think he may be onto something. Rosemary is not used as often in American cooking as it is in Mediterranean dishes. Um, but boy, for a lot of uh, carrots and, and for meat dishes and savory dishes, rosemary really comes into its own. It's a wonderful plant and one, you know, if you have one out in your garden, you can bring it in and winter it over. Uh, if you, it, ours don't last here where we live. So we bring our rosemary plants in and pot them. And then I decorate them for Christmas. But (laughs) I love rosemary. I love the smell of rosemary. I love the history of it. And certainly, I love the research behind it. The research that gives a voice to what
1: people knew more than 2,000 years ago. Well, I think that was Shakespeare, wasn't it, who said, there's rosemary, that's for remembrance. The herb of remembrance. But he got that. He got that from uh, almost 1,500 years before
2: Mm -hmm. Where people were using it in the Mediterranean countries um, for memory because they believed that it helped with memory, especially as we got older.
1: Now, Taroni, we want to talk about something else, another Mediterranean herb that is not that widely used in the U.S. The other evening, Joe took me out to dinner. We went to a restaurant that has outdoor seating because. We're still in COVID, and they do Mediterranean-type food. This evening, they were doing a special on paella. So we enjoyed the paella. Uh And one of the things about paella that makes it different from rice with shrimp in it is the saffron. What can you tell us about saffron?
2: Oh, what a gorgeous, beautiful plant, you know, and expensive because saffron, saffron requires actually humans to cultivate it for it to continue to survive as a plant. And all the stigmas, the, the little parts that we use, those beautiful little stigmas that you get when you buy saffron, those have to be gathered by hand. They must be gathered in the field by hand in the morning when they're harvested. Saffron is this amazingly beautiful, yellow-colored, highly aromatic plant that people have been using. I I want you to think, you know, uh, just about how it was revered throughout the Middle East and in India and many parts of the world where it grew, but it, it really comes to its own in the Middle East. Saffron today has so much research behind it. Looking at its benefits for mental health, uh, particularly for depressed mood and for you know people struggling with with minor depression, but also looking at it for elders, there's been several studies looking at it for memory and for helping to preserve cognition as we get older. It's been used in the Middle East as an herb for um, sexual dysfunction for. Um, people as they age that may have more difficulty with, with, you know, sexual pleasure and their libido. That also is interesting because saffron was associated with uh, one of the Greek goddesses actually that was associated with, with love and sexual pleasure almost 4,000 years ago. So when you look at modern research, there is a tremendous amount being published today looking at the health benefits of saffron, from everything from inflammation and antioxidants to its effect on mood and depression, possibly cognition in elders. And this other part intriguing me around, you know, women as they move beyond menopause, many of them ask me if there are herbs that they can use to help them just continue to feel sexual pleasure and saffron now has—I don't know—five or seven studies looking at this, showing that there is benefit. Um, so I, I love saffron, and I also love paella. And boy, when you cook with saffron, the whole our whole cabin smells delicious.
1: Now, one thing that we discovered is that there's a fair amount of research—five or six studies, maybe even more—a dozen that look at saffron as a supplement for macular degeneration. Yes. Have you seen anything of that? Yeah.
2: Well, these pigments, these, these, um, these pigments, lutein, astaxanthin, uh, zeaxanthin, many of these flavonoids actually have a very protective effect on the eye. And of course, saffron contains these compounds. And so, you know, that is, you know, eye health, uh, another one uh, that saffron can benefit And and there's also, you know, some research on it for metabolic syndrome uh, that we're looking at for its effects on cholesterol and lipids and blood sugar. I I tell you, saffron, 20 years ago, there wasn't much research, Terry. There just, there wasn't much research out there. And there's just been this huge growth in looking at saffron for its health benefits. And, um, you know, I think the main issue here is that saffron is an expensive spice, If you've purchased it at the store, you know that. Um, And also it can be a little bit expensive as a supplement. Be careful with buying the supplements. You want to make sure you're buying from a good brand because we have seen adulteration in the market, which always comes when you have a spice that has to be hand-picked, has to be dried, that these are going to command a higher price and adulteration can happen. So just if you're using it as a supplement, Make sure you're buying from reputable brands to make sure you're getting what you paid for.
0: Dr. Lodog, I was surprised to see in your new book Star Anise. Now, I know Terry sometimes cooks with Star Anise.
1: And in fact, we just ran out. It's time for me to buy some more. But I suspect that most
0: people, well, probably aren't that familiar with it. And don't know about the science behind star anise. Can you give us a little insight on, A, what it looks like, B, how you would use it when you're cooking, and, of course, C, the scientific basis for health benefits?
2: Oh, I love star anise, and people should get familiar with it. I mean, I want you to think of its name, Elysium. I mean, what its botanical name actually means is seduction seduction because it has this incredibly seductive aroma. It is such a wonderful aromatic plant. It looks like a little star, right? It looks like a little, like, you know, six to eight pointed star when you see it. It's from an evergreen tree. And if you've had much Vietnamese cooking, um, you've probably had it. It's also in a number of, you know, Indian blends and in Chinese five spice. I love it. Um, star anise is w- wonderful for digestion. So you know throwing it in your soups and stews, think of it like bay leaves actually. you know so when you cook with bay leaves when you're making a big stew or a big soup, you'll remove them at the end. It's the same thing. We throw star anise, we'll throw one of these large you know sort of seed pods into the stew and you'll let it cook for a few hours and then you'll remove it before serving because it stays hard, right you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to eat it. It is so good for gas, for bloating, indigestion, you know, any of those things. Great for sore throats, uh, if you've got a cough, if you've got colds, any of the respiratory kinds of problems that people have. There is some preliminary data actually looking for, you know, as we age, it actually may help with our cognitive decline. I mean, so that's also an interesting one for me. And then You know, topically, it's a wonderful antiseptic. And it's used like tea tree oil is in many ways. It's very good for, you know, athlete's foot or ringworm or any of the kinds of things that you would typically think of like a a tea tree oil for. So I love it. And in my book, I give a recipe for Chinese marbled eggs, which I serve whenever we have guests. I love to, I love you know, it's just you make hard boiled eggs and then a mixture with like tamari and black tea and star anise and you cook them. And you get this beautiful marbling effect on these hard-boiled eggs. They just look divine. I mean, they they just look so beautiful. But for me, star anise is is an absolute wonder for cooking, and especially in soups and stews, but also in meats, uh, savory dishes. When you're cooking something savory, think about star anise. It really comes into its own there, but a medicinal powerhouse, a medicinal powerhouse.
0: Dr. Lodog, I really would like to get your insight on cinnamon. And the reason I ask about cinnamon is because there's confusion. I mean, there's cinnamon and then there's cinnamon. And it depends on which kind of cinnamon you're buying and whether or not it has a contaminant, coumarin, and whether there's some risk involved. But give us a a quick overview, if you might, about the benefits and risks of cinnamon, and which is the one that we should be buying?
2: Yeah, so true cinnamon, Cinnamomum verum or Zeylanicum. That that's the true cinnamon, right? And and that's what's native to Sri Lanka, and that is that is the primary cinnamon when we we're referring to cinnamon. That's the one we talk about, but that's not the one that's primarily sold here. What we are most used to using in the United States is actually cassia, which is a a different type of cinnamon that grows throughout China and Southeast Asia. So they're used interchangeably for flavoring, and they're also used interchangeably as medicine. As you point out, though, the cassia is higher in coumarin, and there is some concern that when you take it in very large quantities, that can be harmful to the liver, and who is that most concerning for is young children, like young kids who could have a high exposure, relatively speaking, when they're eating a lot of cinnamon flavored baked goods or cinnamon cereals. And so, you know, for an adult, we're less concerned, but the Kasha, um cinnamon that, that's, that's from really more from, you know, Southeast Asia and China, uh, that one can be more harmful, especially for young kids. I will tell you, however that the evidence is for both, both both of them have been studied and shown to be, you know, really good for you. I love to add cinnamon, have people add cinnamon to their coffee, you know, a stick of it up into their, you know, coffee when they're, you know, brewing it, let your cinnamon sort of come down into your coffee to consume it. That's good for your blood sugar. It has a mild effect on triglycerides and total cholesterol. It's a great anti-inflammatory. I mean, I add cinnamon to my teas. I love to add cinnamon when I'm cooking. It's a wonderful anti-inflammatory and we know how much inflammation is driving a lot of the chronic disease today. Um, cinnamon, the essential oil of cinnamon is used in a lot of, you know, oral products and a lot of oral health products because cinnamon, uh, has a very strong antibacterial and antimicrobial effect. And, you know, chewing on a cinnamon, Type of mint or little lozenge is also very good because it controls bad breath and the bacteria that, it, you know, causes it. So, you know, it's just amazing. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that for kids that are having the, you know, the GI bug where they're having some vomiting and diarrhea and just feel terrible, uh, ginger is most commonly associated with easing nausea and vomiting, but a lot of young children don't like it. If you just mix a little cinnamon powder in applesauce, uh, that it will, the pectin in the applesauce will help the diarrhea, but the cinnamon is excellent for nausea and vomiting and is more appealing to young children. So cinnamon, you know, wow, cinnamon for menstrual pain, menstrual cramps. We use ginger for that also, but cinnamon is more appealing to some women. They don't like the taste of ginger. So gosh, I really, I love cinnamon and we're coming up, you know, when people are entering into autumns and winters, People love um, cinnamon because it reminds them of the holidays and cinnamon cookies. And again, the only concern that we have for cinnamon is the cassia. And, uh, you know, you don't want to overdo on that one, especially in young children. The Germans and the Europeans came out with some warnings on, on not overdoing exactly. that in young children because of the potential harm there.
1: Dr. Lodog, one last question. What is it that we should consider using daily?
2: I think you should add just more spices and culinary herbs into your diet on a daily basis, learning to make food truly medicine by making the foods more powerful as well as more aromatic and more tasty. I cook with turmeric all the time. I love ginger tea in the winter. Um, you know, I use, I use sage in my cooking, but I also, you know, took it for my menopause. I think that it depends upon what you're looking for. If you want more warmth and digestion, you know, adding more ginger and cinnamons, adding turmeric to golden milk and drinking that. If you've, you know, looking for an anti-inflammatory garlic, of course, is an old standby, um, for just maintaining good health across a lifespan, but you know, Spices and culinary herbs have always been part of ethnic diets and they are medicinal powerhouses and learning to cook with them, learning to add them to your diet, learning to, you know, drink them and tease. All of this can be part of a lifestyle approach to nourishing ourselves at a deep and a deep and, and wondrous level. So. You know, make friends with culinary herbs and spices, grow them in your gardens, add them to your dishes, and you'll find that you'll find that not only do they enhance the pleasure of your food, but they will also contribute to your lifelong journey of health.
1: Dr. Taruni Lodog, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Tyrone Lodog. She's a founding member of the American Board of Physician Specialties, American Board of Integrative Medicine, and the Academy of Women's Health. Dr. Lodog's e-books include Healing Heartburn Naturally and Spices That Heal. 10 Healing Herbs and Spices and the Science that Supports Them.
0: After the break, Dr. Bill Rawls will discuss cellular wellness.
1: How can we monitor cellular health?
0: A number of chronic conditions like long COVID may be rooted in problems at the cellular level.
1: Herbal treatments might be helpful. What does science tell us?
0: Find out how herbs can work synergistically at the cellular level.
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon.
0: This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavonols in powder and capsule form. More information at cocovia.com.
3: And
0: by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com.
1: Our bodies are composed of individual cells working together. If we don't provide our cells with the support they need for good health, it undermines the health of our entire system.
0: To learn more about how herbs can enhance cellular health, we turn to Dr. Bill Rawls. His most recent book is The Cellular Wellness Solution, tap into your full health potential with the science-backed power of herbs. For the past 15 years, he's been extensively studying the science behind herbal therapies and new sustainable approaches for protecting health.
1: Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy, Dr. Bill Rawls.
3: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Dr. Rawls, uh, you have this uh, amazing new book titled The Cellular Wellness Solution. And, you know, I think most people think in terms of organs, you know, heart, digestive tract, brain, but they have a hard time thinking down to the cellular level. So what do you mean when you say cellular wellness? Why is it so important?
3: Yeah, it's really the key to understanding wellness, illness, everything else. And we think in a way that we have been thinking for a long time. You know, we get used to thinking in terms of compartmentalization and therapies for illness. So we have pulmonologists, cardiologists, and we divide everything up. But if you want to simplify something, break it down to its smallest functional unit. And for the human body, that is a living cell. Everything that happens in the body is a function of the actions of cells, whether that's your heart beating, whether that's your thyroid hormone producing thyroid, everything in the body is happening by the actions of cells. So when you look at that, each cell is an independent functioning unit that needs certain nutrients to stay healthy, to do its job. It's affected by toxins. And when you look at this whole composite, when we talk about hormones and messengers in the body, all of that is cellular communication. Cells have to talk to one another to work together. So when you look at the concept of health, it's a function of your cells. If your cells are healthy and all functioning in harmony, you'll feel great. But if it's not, that's the root of symptoms.
1: Now, how do you know, how can you tell if your cells are humming along on all, however many cylinders they may have, or getting into trouble?
3: They tell you, which is really interesting. We don't think about it this way. You know, everybody has experienced a symptom of some kind, a muscle ache, you know, abdominal discomfort, a headache, something. But We think about this in just these terms of, well, it's kind of nebulous. I'm feeling discomfort. That's a symptom. But what a symptom is, is stressed cells. When cells become injured or stressed, two things happen. One, the cell releases substances that tell the brain something is wrong. So we feel pain or discomfort. But the other thing is, if you stress or injure cells, like twisting your ankle or something like that, You've compromised the function of those cells, so you partially lose that function, or sometimes lose it all the way. So not only do you feel the symptom, you have compromised; things don't work as well. So it's a different way of looking at symptoms, and you know, and, and it really helps specify what exactly a symptom is.
0: So how would we know if our cells are under stress? Or as Terry described it, humming along happily. Uh, I think about, um, you know, a situation where somebody sprains an ankle and you go, oh, it's red, it's swollen. Okay, you can tell that there are a lot of cells that have been affected. But how would you as a physician monitor cellular health?
3: Really, you know, what I've learned over time is with all the labs that we have and everything else, you know they're all valuable we are getting a window into cellular functions but just that feeling of having a symptom or not feeling like you should that's a pretty good indication that something's going wrong with your cellular functions and it can be specific like if you block off a coronary artery and your your heart cells don't get blood then you feel it as chest pain pretty immediately But it can be more systemic. So when we talk about symptoms of fatigue, that's a sign that our cells throughout our body are being stressed. So symptoms are a pretty good indication of what's going on. Now, of course, symptoms come and go throughout our lifetime. So we have healing, right? Symptoms resolve. So that other term that we often talk about, but a lot of people have a hard time describing healing, what is healing? Healing is the ability of cells that have been stressed or injured to repair that injury internally, repair the damage to the cell, or regenerate new cells. So what healing is, is the ability of cells to recover from being injured or stressed. So when you start thinking in those cellular terms, it's pretty cool because our cells are always working for us. they always trying to heal, repair, and get us back
1: in the game. Dr. Ralls. we've talked to you in some previous interviews about your journey with Lyme disease, and we now have people who are quite a lot of people, unfortunately, who are suffering long-term consequences from having had COVID. We don't understand that much about the cellular level of these lingering problems. What can you tell us about them?
3: Yeah. yeah. Dealing with chronic Lyme disease took me to a different place of understanding our relationship with microbes. You know, we are exposed to microbes throughout our lifetime. And this idea that we pick something up, we get an infection, we feel symptoms from it, the symptoms resolve that the microbe is gone, isn't necessarily always the case that it's, you know, the emerging evidence is suggesting that microbes that we pick up through our lifetime can become dormant inside of our cells. So all the things that enter our body are intracellular. They live inside cells. They do that because cells can provide resources and nutrients and protection from the immune system. So a lot of bacteria, all viruses, some protozoa, have adopted that ability or adapted that ability to live inside cells. The recent evidence is showing that they can actually become dormant there. The cell can keep on functioning. So it's interesting when you look at, you know, long COVID is starting to really bring out a lot of research about our relationship with microbes. And there's been a lot of research looking back at other kinds of viral syndromes and how these things can hang on, become dormant, come back. You know, I think your profession
0: is beginning to come to grips with this concept, even though it's known about it for for a very, very long time. I mean, like you say, we think about an infection, oftentimes bacteria, and we give an antibiotic, and two weeks later, you're done, you're better. Goodbye, go home. You know, pneumonia being a classic example. But herpes, I mean, we know that this virus can linger in the brain and cause a cold sore and then retreat and come back. And the same thing is true with chickenpox, another viral infection also related to the herpes family. It can come back 30, 40, 50 years later as shingles. And it's like, okay, okay. How could it be hanging out for 10, 20, 40 years in, as you describe it, a dormant stage?
3: Yeah, this this idea of dormant microbes in our tissues, and we're just getting into this. You know, scientists around the world, it's not one study. You know, different scientists around the world are simultaneously looking at this thing. And I think we're just starting to, to really dig into understanding it. But this idea that yes, we could have dormant microbes, and also the idea that we pick up a lot of things that we don't even know about, you know. So, like for chronic Lyme disease, I talk to a lot of people who test positive for Borrelia. We know we have it in their system. They don't remember an acute infection or being bitten by a tick, so they didn't even have the acute symptoms. And that's true of so many things. And research is starting to show that. You know, microbes in our gut trickle across into our bloodstream from our sinuses, from our teeth, uh, from our skin, and they hit the blood and they circulate through the body and they have the potential. So, there's even some research suggesting that possibly some of these relationships are even symbiotic, that they're favorable for our cells. Our cells need them. So, it's a really, really fascinating new part of research.
1: Well, one of the things that's so unique about the Cellular Wellness Solution is your idea that we can use herbs to help us heal. What can you tell us about that? You know, when
3: you look at this concept of cellular stress being the root of symptoms and you know, the, the, and the threats against ourselves, poor nutrition and toxic substances and free radicals and all of these other things and this microbe thing we've just been talking about, protecting ourselves is the way to health. And when you start looking out there for things to do that, of course, eating well, clean environment, all of these things are important. But if you want to add to that herbs, wow, the chemistry of the herb, because when you think about it, a plant is a multicellular organism, just like we are. And plants have been suggested as being the most sophisticated chemist on Earth. They solve problems with chemistry. So all plants are are producing this complex spectrum of what we call phytochemicals, chemicals to protect the plant's cells from free radicals, from microbes, from toxic substances. Even from insects. And from insects. Um, So all kinds of different threats. And... The plants we define as herbs are plants that humans have found over hundreds or even thousands of years as being compatible with our biochemistry. So when we take these things, it's like we're gaining all of the plant's defenses and benefits and boosting our cellular protection. Now, a lot of your colleagues kind of have embraced
0: the, what I think they think of as the medical model Which is pharmaceuticals. Yes. You know, double blind, randomized, placebo controlled trials, drugs that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to produce, and herbs? Well, that's kind of quaint. There's no science (laughs) to support that. It's like, yeah, that's stuff grandma used. But you've found a lot of science to support herbal treatments. Can you give us some insight into this world and why you think it has validity?
3: Yeah. Well, that's a big part of the book. And I've said many times, I couldn't have written this book two decades ago. But there has been just an explosion of research into the phytochemistry of herbs and how that affects our physiology and the safety profiles of herbs. So, we really know a lot more than we've ever known. So, you, you, you pair that with thousands of years of human use of these things. So we know all this information that's observational from our herbal traditions. And now we're taking those traditions and adding in that component of science, of looking how it actually works at the cellular and biochemical level. Wow.
0: Well, let's just mention a few uh, in the moments that we have left. You talk about stress and its impact on our bodies. You talk about adaptogens, and you pick a few herbs in particular, uh, rhodiola, reishi, and something I've never heard of before and don't know how to pronounce, shilajit? Shilajit, Shilajit. yes.
3: Yeah, so what we're doing with the herbs is, again, protecting ourselves, but also balancing our hormones. So plants, their plant cells have to communicate. They have to be coordinated. All of their functions have to be coordinated like ours. So plants also are using chemical messengers that are very much like ours. So for many plants, when we take those substances in, it helps balance uh, hormone pathways. And we can go in you know, it, it would take a while to go into the details. But short story is it has this balancing effect on hormones, which helps us resist stress, helps us sleep better. All of these things are working toward that cellular wellness because, again, cells have to talk to one another, hormones have to be balanced, and we live in a world where we're just pushing that stress button continually, and that can really wear on us. Dr. Rawls, you've used
0: the metaphor of a single instrument versus a symphony, and I think that really makes sense because a, a beautiful violin solo is great, but put it together with an orchestra and now, now you have something extraordinary going on and you've implied that's what happens with some of these herbs. So can you give us an example, especially of the adaptogens, of how they work together synergistically to really help at the cellular level?
3: Sure. Well, again, you know, different herbs because of environments that they're in solve different problems, so their chemistry is slightly different. Now, any herb, you're getting some cellular protection. So any herb is going to benefit everything in your body. But it may be that one herb, because of its characteristics, may protect some cells better. Like milk thistle, we know, is really good for protecting liver cells. Where other herbs, as we mentioned, rhodiola. Rhodiola is from Siberia. It grows in a cold, harsh environment. So its phytochemistry is really good for protecting us from physical and mental strain and stress. It's been used by athletes, workers uh, that are uh, you know under stressful conditions. So when each of the herbs come together, turmeric, a wonderful anti-inflammatory. Go to Cola, wonderful for the brain. So you combine all those things together, and it's just this really, really robust spectrum of protection. And again, what we're doing is protecting cells, balancing cellular communication, and that is what wellness is all about.
1: I have a question that may be a little bit off the wall, but here it goes. We have just been talking about the possibility that we all, each of us, harbors an unknown range of microbes within our cells. And I'm thinking about the herbs, including the culinary herbs that we may be using from day to day. Quite a few of them have antimicrobial activity. What's the impact both on our microbiome, which we need, and on these intracellular things that are hanging out, and we don't know whether they're good or bad for us.
3: Yeah. It's, um, well, again, that's when you look at an herb compared to something like an antibiotic. So, an antibiotic is a very specific chemical that's, that affects a type of bacteria in a very specific way. So with an herb, you're getting hundreds of different chemicals that affect microbes in different ways, but they also in affect uh, cellular functions. So it's interesting, when I was struggling through Lyme, I was looking for herbs with antimicrobial properties, mm-hmm. and there are quite a number that are recognized. And many of them you can take long-term because unlike an antibiotic, they actually balance gut functions and, and balance normal flora in the gut as opposed to just just destroying everything in the gut. So you can do that. But then I started looking when I was writing the new book. It was like, well, what about turmeric and rhodiola and all of these mm-hmm. other herbs? We don't really think about them as antimicrobial. Has anybody looked at that? And lo and behold, yeah. They, they, all they have do antimicrobial have antimicrobial properties. Yeah. Maybe not as pronounced as some. It's like mm-hmm. rhodiola. Well, there's not, in that cold, harsh environment up in Siberia,
1: not a lot not of microbes. Not as many microbes, yeah.
3: Compared to, say, cat's claw from the Amazon, uh-huh. whereas in a, in, a cl- in that warm, moist environment. So, yeah, there are some with better, but they all have some, and that makes sense. When you take that whole herb, you're getting that whole spectrum of protection And all plants have to protect themselves from microbes. I mean, it's just, you know, all living things have to protect themselves from microbes. So when you look at this idea that we have dormant microbes in our tissues, now we think about the immune system um, as being our protection. So I like to think of three levels of protection that we actually have. So one is barriers, our skin, our gut lining. Those things are designed to keep the microbes out. And when that doesn't work, when they leak across, we've got the immune system as a backup plan to try to to start getting rid of as much of those. But we know some make it to our tissues. That's becoming very evident now. And the third level of protection is our cells. Our cells are not defenseless. So our cells have this thing called autophagy that they use It's part of the healing process to break down worn out proteins and messed up DNA and burned out mitochondria and recycle those things and build new. Well, they also use that process of autophagy to kill or eject microbes. So that is part of the defense. That microbe thing, though, this give and take over years, one of the defenses of the microbe is well, we'll just go dormant so they don't know we're here. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see this. So they can be dormant. But if you end up with long COVID, chronic Lyme, or maybe any chronic illness, reactivation of microbes may be happening. You know, you're shifting the environment of your body from one that favors cellular wellness to one that is favoring microbe growth. And then the microbes start reactivating, breaking down cells. So what we're doing with the herbs is we're affecting those microbes, but mainly just the pathogens that we have to worry about. But we're also affecting cellular health, which is really, really important. So when our cells are strong, they can resist microbes. They can keep those microbes dormant inside but when our cells are stressed by Mm. poor diet toxic environment staying up all night not getting you know pushing that stress button not exercising because we all need that exercise to move blood when these things are chronically not happening and our cells get stressed and congested and weak that's when this starts happening so of course the lifestyle is important we have we all should be doing those things But the herbs are doing things that we can't even do with Mm -hmm. with food. They're protecting ourselves from all of these stress factors so our cells start being able to recover again, start, start to heal.
1: Well, that idea of stress of one sort or another, throwing our cells out of balance, and then the microbes picking up on that, that fits really well with the concept of the the herpes viruses showing up as cold sores when you're under stress or when you're out in the sun too long or, you know, something of that nature or, you know, showing up as shingles if it was a past chickenpox infection.
3: When I started looking at the numbers of microbes that could become dormant and reactivated, it's just startling. And, you know, it really hit close to home some years ago. Um, my father developed an eye infection. Mm. And he went to the eye doctor and they said, well, it's toxoplasma, oh. which is a protozoa. And yeah. a lot of us pick it up through our lifetime for eating undercooked meat and things like that. So about 60% of the population carries it dormant in their cells. It's intracellular. So they treated them. Um, symptoms went away, came back in the other eye. And he said, well, we need to check it out a little more. And he was starting to develop symptoms again. They did an aspiration and he had an actual lymphoma in his eye. Mm. So the first thing I did was go to the literature and find it, found out that this toxoplasma has a direct connection to this lymphoma. So it's just so it
1: greatly increases the likelihood that you will well, develop it's, it's a lymphoma. A,
3: a key player in this particular lymphoma. So it's it's just one of the so many things that can become reactivated. So we're starting. So as I'm looking for evidence of dormant microbes, Epstein Barr, you know, sh- shingles, and the connections. You know, there has been a, uh, a connection with herpes simplex and dementia, and you know you start looking at all the connections and it's like whoa
0: well we we discovered that there was a pathologist i think in the northwest maybe in portland or seattle who came up with the idea that herpes simplex infections might not just go down from the brain to for example the lip to have a a cold sore but might go up into the brain and contribute to dementia or Alzheimer's disease. But this is like three or four decades ago and nobody paid much attention to him. Now there's accumulating evidence to suggest that he might've been onto something. So if that's true, And if some of the other conditions that you've mentioned may also be related to dormant microbes, and we say microbes, we're not just talking about bacteria. We're talking about viruses. We're talking about fungi. We're talking about all kinds of things that can literally hang out in our body, in our tissues, in our cells for months or years or decades. Now it becomes really important to figure out, well, what? do we do about that? And that's when I'd like to get into some of the adaptogens and some of the other herbs. Now, there's something called reishi, and I'd like to go back to this thing called shilajit. Right. What is it?
3: Why should we be taking it? Yeah. Well, when we say herbs, we typically refer to plants. But... A lot of our medicinal mushrooms, so it's reishi is a shelf mushroom. If you've ever taken a hike in the woods and saw a little rainbow-like rust-colored mushroom on the side of a tree, that's a reishi. A lot of species of it. It has been researched extensively in Japan for its truly tremendous anti-cancer properties. But it's all protective and it's considered an immune modulator. It balances the immune system. So overactive portions of the immune system tones them down. Underactive bumps them up. There is no drug that can do that. So the things that, you know, we understand so much more, but even then that intelligence of the mushroom of the plant, wow, it, it is sometimes a little bit beyond our grasp to explain it uh precisely, but more and more research and just the fascinating effects of that. So Rishi, a medicinal mushroom, wonderful, one that I take every day, has antiviral properties. you know So you know, when you think about it, all organisms have to protect themselves against microbes. So even mushrooms are protecting themselves against different types of microbes. so you're, you would expect some antiviral and maybe some antibacterial properties. Now, Shifting years, shilajit. Um, It's an interesting substance, and I added it into my regiment for a specific purpose. So what it is, this has been revered in the Himalayas for literally uh, thousands of years as something that promotes life, that protects life. And what it is, is plant material, plant phytochemicals, that have been fermented in the soil with bacteria, and then it it is pushed f- uh, between rocks in in the Himalayas. But it's also found in Alaska and other northern latitudes. And it turns out, Native Americans, Native Canadians, uh, Inuit populations were using this also, as well as 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 uh, uh, fo- folks in in Tibet and Nepal. So. So the substance, when we take it, it supplies something called humic acid and fulvic acid, which have been defined as having some really wonderful health properties. And so these are things, so you think about it, we used to eat on the ground. We got a lot of soil and soil bacteria in our food when we ate. We don't do that anymore. We eat really clean food, and we're not getting that humic acid and fulvic acid that would be natu- a natural part of our diet. So shilajit is a substance so we can kind of add back something that's missing. But it is important with shilajit to get something that has been tested, that is purified, just to make sure you're getting something of quality.
1: Well, that brings me to my final question, which is what advice can you give our listeners for finding herbs that are beneficial That are high quality. What tips do you have to help guide them in their uh, herb purchasing?
3: Yeah, there is quite a range of products out there, and you know it it is regulated by the FDA, but it doesn't need to be regulated to the degree of as as drugs. You know, most of our drugs are potentially poisonous in anything in a very uh, defined therapeutic dose, where herbs because they're working differently, because their protective functions are protective, you don't necessarily need to have that very stringent dose. That being said, you do have to have the quantity of the phytochemistry to get the benefits, and nobody wants heavy metals and other pollutants, which is really pretty common because there's so much of that in our atmosphere now. So, it's all about testing. And, companies that do the level of testing that's required. Um, So going through the testing, I mean, this is one of the things that I was looking at early in my career when I was looking, uh, deciding to, you know, create our own products is just having control over that. But it's, it's testing. It's testing for heavy metals, testing to make sure the plant is correct because some products that is not true making sure that uh, the quantity, the concentration of the phytochemistry is there that's going to give you a therapeutic effect. And most reputable companies, and there are plenty of them out there, most reputable companies are going to post those standards. You know, they're going to talk about on their website the the levels of testing that they do and the types of testing that they do. So it's... um. You know, it's not as much a seal or something that you buy from an agency. It's really the company taking the time to go through those very important steps to make sure that the final product is something that isn't going to harm and is going to give people the therapeutic effect they're looking for.
1: Dr. Bill Rawls, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. My pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Bill Rawls, His books include Unlocking Lyme, Myths, Truths, and Practical Solutions for Chronic Lyme Disease, and his most recent, The Cellular Wellness Solution, Tap into Your Full Health Potential with the Science-Backed Power of Herbs. His website is vitalplan.com. We spoke earlier with Dr. Tironi Lodog. Her website? drlodog.com.
0: Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music.
1: This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy.
0: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Coco Villa the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com.
1: And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. The herb of the month is astragalus. More information at GaiaHerbs.com.
0: Today's show is number 1,322. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments to let us know what you think about today's show. Email us at radio at peoplespharmacy.com.
1: Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. This week's podcast has additional information from both of our guests. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter. Get the latest news about important health stories.
0: In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And
1: I'm Terry Graydon. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like
0: what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in.